lady, and it's really strange because I've never heard her. I've only heard about her from many, many people. And <laughs> the comical part of this, people that know me here know I talk a lot, but I'm really shy. And I hate telephones, desperately. I hate to call my sponsor. I hate to call anyone on a telephone. If I call my sponsor, it's usually to say I'm on my way, and I leave and I go. And so the one fear that I had when I got chairman of this committee was I knew I had to call the, the speakers. And I thought, well, dummy, you've got to walk through it sometimes, so just do it. Well, I did it very stumbly, and it always is nice because you know you're talking to an Al-Anon on the other end. And I made this long-distance call, not really even knowing if I had the right person. I, somebody had said her name was one thing, and then somebody had said her name was something else, and I'd called information. And so whoever I got, I thought, well, I'll try. And ha- what do you say to these people, you know? <laughs> Hello, <laughs> who are you? So it was kind of amusing. When I called her, I said, um, are you the lady that speaks for al And she kind of chuckled and said, nobody speaks for al <laughs> But I do <laughs> talk. <laughs> oh, Okay, well, I think you're the lady I want then. And I knew, I knew right then she knew, oh, boy, I'm working with a real winner here. You know? <laughs> but anyway, at least then I knew I had the right lady. And she so graciously accepted and has taken it from then on because if I had to make the arrangement, she probably wouldn't have made it till next week or something. So anyway, the lady I'm going to introduce is called Blanche D. And you just come do the rest. You know how to do this better than me. Someday I'm going to write a book about the calls I get. <laughs> there was one from Florida a few years ago. When she ascertained that I was the one when she was calling, she said, do you still go to meetings? <laughs> and I said, yeah. She said, how many? I said, two a week. Is that all right? <laughs> she said, oh, then I'm authorized to invite you to talk. <laughs> My name is Blanche, and I'm a recovering Al-Anon. Hi. I've been a member of the Suburban Al-Anon Group in Odessa, Texas, since July of 1964. We give dates in Texas. I'm kind of waiting for everyone to get seated. I can't give you detention hall the way I can my school (laughs) students, but I can wait for you. I have trouble addressing a parade. I have a, I like to see your eyes, you know. When Beverly asked me to talk 30 minutes this afternoon. I said, what about? And she said, anything you like, which is dangerous to tell a Texan because we always can say a few words about Texas. But she seemed to feel it ought to be something on the program, and that did uh, narrow it down. And I thought of several things that are dear to my heart and that I like to talk about. And this isn't my story. If you attend in the morning, you will hear that if you want to hear it. And I thought of... uh, something that has come up a lot of places where I have been over the last few years, and that's sponsorship. And so I thought I would talk with you about that. Now, when I talk outside my experience, I lose my validity. So I can share with you my own experience, both as a person who has been sponsored, well-sponsored, and a person who does sponsor. When I was growing up, my mother used to tell me to marry a well-mothered man. Because, you know, his whole orientation toward women is determined by his relationship with his mother. And she, um, she used to say, listen to how he talks about his mother and his sisters. And that was good advice. I did marry a well-mothered man. And I would suggest, first of all, that people hunting a sponsor find a well-sponsored sponsor. We don't have any gurus in this fellowship. 
and I'm very leery of people who don't feel they need any counseling themselves and they can dispense it in large doses. And I hunted a well-sponsored sponsor. It wasn't easy because our group had only been active about six months, maybe. And so we were kind of the blind leading the blind at that time. A few years ago, the uh, man to whom I was married, Charles, learned to fly an airplane. He came in one day after he was taking lessons and he said, I think uh, I found out what a sponsor is. A sponsor is an instructor who holds your hand until you can solo. I thought that was a good definition. <laughs> then, then perhaps can serve as co-pilot as needed. Well, we don't have any rules about sponsorship. We have some guidelines, some very general ones. Uh, I said that I could share with you my experience as a person who has been sponsored and who does sponsoring. I find myself juggling the terms because I don't like any term I know for a person who is being sponsored. I don't like pigeon. I think it's derogatory. I certainly don't like baby. And we don't have one that appeals to me. And if I say sponsoree, that does sound like an English teacher. So I'll just try to circumvent, you know, the best I can. Hey, that's good, Arbutus. <laughs> I kind of like that. That's good. Seekers. You know, of course, that we wait to be asked before we sponsor. This may not be necessary to remind uh, people outside Al-Anon, but one of our symptoms of untreated Al-Anonism is that we're going to rush in and rescue. At least um, the people I know, until they get some recovery, have this conviction that if they're aware of a need, it is somehow God's assignment to them to fill it. I certainly felt that way for years and years, and so I needed to be told that you wait until you're asked to sponsor someone. <laughs> Besides, the reaching out and asking for help is part of the newcomer's therapy. It was certainly important to me. I had a hard time asking for help. I was the kind who didn't ask for directions in a strange town. I bought a map. But asking meant I didn't know, and I didn't want you to know I didn't know. And I found I'm not alone in this, that uh, new Alanons often feel that way. So it is part of their therapy that they reach out and that they learn to ask for what they need. We need to remember that a sponsor is at her own level of recovery, not beyond pain. And this is important because I said a while ago we don't have any gurus and we don't have disciples. Perhaps someone who's been around a while is a little more skilled in using the tools than we are. But beyond that, we need uh, someone who's been down the road who can say, here's how the steps worked for me and can tell us where we're likely to hit construction and, and detours. It's a sharing, after all, not a telling. It isn't a lecturing. We can say the program teaches, or the literature says, and that makes it impersonal. That means that's not coming from me. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. Here's what the program says, and then we can say, it has been my experience, that. Or sometimes it has been my observation, if it hasn't been my experience. And, of course, we don't give advice. I thought when I got into Al-Anon and began to understand these things, what do you do if you don't give advice? And they said, we help each other to see what our options are. I guess a great deal of the misery I've ever had in my life has come from choosing things that were not available options for me. When I got to you people, I thought I had three choices. I could get a divorce. I could live with Charles while we both tried to recover in the program or I could have a close, warm, loving, communicative marriage. So I opted for number three, and unfortunately, that was not one of my available choices. And so I was pretty miserable for quite a while until I had a sponsor who said, let's see what your choices are. 
And that's what my sponsor does for me today. He helps me to see options. I can't always see all of them. And very often she can see some that I cannot. And then I think it's important that we know when professional help is needed. And we don't assume we can do that. And I think this is a very important point. Now, those are pretty well accepted guidelines, okay? As far as I know, that's pretty general. I want to talk about some that are kind of controversial. And if you want to disagree with me, it won't bother me. I was married to an alcoholic for 30 years, and I reared two children. And I spend my day with 17-year-olds. And being disagreed with is not going to upset me, okay? (laughs) We'll start with the one about men sponsoring women and vice versa. The official view from New York is that men sponsor men and women sponsor women. In West Texas, people sponsor people. You might understand that better here than some places because you too live in a sparsely populated area. But we have vast distances between towns and we don't always have someone available and accessible. There's a man in California named Bob from Riverside, California who explained it in a way that I liked. And he said we're not to put personalities above principles and as far as he's concerned, a person's age, sex, physical appearance, whatever, is part of his personality. And that is not what is important. I have had men I sponsored tell me that it's a great deal easier to share feelings with a woman, that men have trouble sharing feelings with each other. In our society, men are conditioned not to share feelings. And um, if this would not work for you, don't do it, okay? I mean, you know yourself. And if you're not comfortable with it, don't. But we have a saying in the oil fields, if it works, don't fix it. And so it does work for me, so I don't plan to fix it. As it happens, both my sponsors have been women. And the people with whom I have done fifth steps have been women, but it would not have mattered. If it happened that the person had been a man, it would have been fine with me. Another point I hear discussed and no one seems to agree on is the kind of guidance. I cringe every time I hear someone say, I was told, sit down and shut up and listen. You wouldn't have had to tell me that but once. I would never have gone back. If you yell at me, I, I just tune you out. And I will not be condescended to. Not then or now. And so if that's what it took for you, then I'm glad that God sent you that kind of sponsor. But he sent me the kind I had to have, who was gentle and firm. And I could not have heard any other kind. I'm always sorry when somebody says, if your sponsor is still your friend after six months, there's something wrong. Oh, I hope not. I love the people that I have sponsored in a very special way. I would be so sorry if they felt we could not be friends. And I certainly have considered my sponsors friends. I got so much praise and approval. You know, one day at a time says one job the sponsor has is to soothe the bruised ego. And that book was not written until years after I got in the fellowship. But I had a sponsor who somehow knew to do that. And this is what I tried to give those people I work with. Much praise and approval. One time I said to my sponsor, You know, I have been telling God, and she said, What? And I said, I have been telling him that she said, uh, why don't you try, you know, just reporting for duty. You really don't need to give him instructions. And she said it gently and she said it with a smile. But I've thought of that every time since that I've tried to tell God something. That was my first sponsor. I had her for 11 years and then she moved away. And I sort of floundered around for a year and then I reached out to a woman, Donna Lancaster, whom many of you know because she talks all over everywhere. And she was a person who was at that point in time where I was on my spiritual journey. And I needed her very much. And she's gentle too. She says things like, 
Anytime I'm trying to convince someone of what a tough time I'm having, I have to listen for self-pity. <laughs> Isn't that tactful? She always says it when I'm telling her what a tough time I'm having. <laughs> I tend to say, and it's true, I don't treat her that way, or I would never do that to him, or, and she says, you know, when I say those things, I have to listen for self-righteousness. <laughs> so I, I hear it. Eventually, the people I sponsor, uh, I, well, I get no respect is what it is. They just are dedicated to keeping me humble. And uh, <laughs> some of you met Betty. She went to the International with me in New Orleans. And she's crazy is what she is, certifiably. They ought to drop a net over her. She went around saying to people, how much, do you, how much tuition do you pay your sponsor? And I was saying, Betty, don't. They'll believe you. Don't. Don't say those things. And she said, I have to pay mine every Thursday. When do you pay tuition? And I was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> or she would say, uh, listen, don't ever get a school teacher for your sponsor. I take these tests, and if I don't have a C average, I have to take them over. <laughs> Can you believe that? Honestly. I, I trust everyone knew she was kidding, but they might not have... And I don't know how important this is to you, but it has been important in our area. I uh, can tell you who my sponsor is, but I do not tell you whom I sponsor. They don't exist for the extension of my ego. And I'm always a little leery of people who manage to drop into the conversation constantly how many people they are sponsoring. Now, this, uh, this may not you know, have ever come up here. I don't know. But we consider it important. They are free to tell you, but I am not free to. And I think those of you who know me know I almost never mention sponsoring anybody. I was trained that way. Some questions come up. Uh, can you have more than one? Well, I couldn't at one time. I think the uh, confusion comes when we assume that everyone we talk to or everyone who helps us is going to have the title of sponsor. That's not so. I often call in special special. special um, what am I trying to say? Consultants. I mentioned sponsoring men. I have an Al-Anon friend in New Jersey whom I call and say, here's what I just told a man. Does this sound right? And I feel better about it if I check it out. And certainly I don't mind anyone I am sponsoring uh, listening to anyone else. I have told them, though, that if they hear something that conflicts with what I have told them, that they better check with me first. <laughs> I'm only half kidding. Just, just half. I have some jealousy, of course, when they can hear other people, but I can laugh at it now. Arbutus knows one man I sponsor, Craig, who lives in her city, and uh, he called sometime in his second year in the program and said, listen, you know what you can, I just heard the neatest thing. Do you know what you can say to somebody that you're trying to get to come to Al-Anon? I said, what? He said, you can say, you don't have to live this way anymore. And I thought, wow, how many times I had said that, and he never heard me, never heard me. And I said, oh, that is neat. That's, boy, that's something good to remember. <laughs> My children were like that, weren't yours? <laughs> I used to urge my daughter, who is the reader, to read because I read a lot. And I would recommend books. This was when she was in high school. And for me to recommend a book was the kiss of death. It, it, that was it. And yet she would call me from college when she was away at school and say, oh, I'm reading the greatest book Dr. So-and-so recommended that we read. And I thought, okay. And then I learned to be grateful that she could hear anybody and she can hear me now but there were a few years when she could not do you ever fire a sponsor I have been fired twice nicely both times once by letter once in person 
Uh, I certainly think if, you, if, if anyone finds that he or she can no longer work with the person, then it's time to uh, say so and hunt someone else. I would do that rather than add one. That's my personal opinion, okay? I think sometimes we outgrow them or the people I sponsor outgrow me or whatever. I think our, our, our recovery takes us in different directions. And so I think there are valid reasons for changing sponsors sometime. Have you ever quit as a sponsor? I have quit twice. One lady who obviously was on the wrong side and has since switched sides. And then another time when a lady could not give up her pills and I could not work with her as long as she was so tranquil that she sat and, you know, smiled in space. So um, I certainly retain the right to quit if I feel that we are not working well together. I have found, too, that there's a difference in sponsoring newcomers and in people who have been around a while who, for some reason or another, need a new sponsor. I don't know what it tells about me, but something that uh, I sponsor very few newcomers. Two in the last, oh, ten years, I guess. But most of the people I sponsor are people who have been in the program a while and who have a reason to acquire a sponsor. I would recommend that everyone be working with one newcomer, not more than two at any given time, but certainly one, because that's a course in remedial Al-Anon. <laughs> Do you know what, what fun it is to take a child somewhere and to see everything through the child's eyes? place perhaps that you've seen many times and all these truths that I hope have become so much a part of me and yet that I don't want to take for granted and I see them absorbed and put to use in the life of someone who is new and it's, it's a never-changing thrill for me it's important I think that both the sponsor and the person being sponsored know what the source is it's one of the first things that you all did for me when I got to you was explained to me that uh, we are channels and that the source was God. You were telling me that to tell me not to look to people to supply my needs. But I think it applies here too. I also think it's okay for us to love the channel. I'm a hero worshiper and I make no apology for it. The people I love can do no wrong or if they did, they had a good reason. That's how I feel. <laughs> and I, don't, I have not asked God to remove that defect. <laughs> I think it is all right to love the vessel that God uses. And I don't forget that he is the source. I get a great deal of, this is difficult for me to say, okay, so please hear me lovingly. I get a great deal of adulation. I get a great deal of, of uh, praise, okay? I had a terrible time handling that when it first began. I would dig my toe in the dirt and go all shucks or something, you know, equally gracious and... Um, <laughs> I've had people help me um, when, uh, one I'll share with you, when I talk somewhere and people come up afterwards and express their appreciation, I used to have a hard time, what do you say after you've said thank you, you know, then what else is there? And my sponsor said, listen, when you're standing up there talking, you are emotionally very vulnerable. You are risking rejection. You are risking being misunderstood. You're risking being disliked. And the people sitting there are taking no risks of any kind. And it's all right for you to let them come up afterwards and in one way or another tell you we didn't misunderstand and you were not rejected. And so I can let you do that for me now. 
And she said, the other thing to remember is that it didn't come from you but through you. And you need to channel the gratitude back to the source. And I can do that mentally. And as long as I don't forget that, I'm all right. I get a great many letters. A great many, like hundreds. And one came a couple of years ago from a woman in California who wanted to tell me about hearing a tape, and it was extravagant beyond belief. My son was home at that time. He's 26 now. Had 10 years in Alateen. And I handed it to him to read, and I said, I never quite know what to do with this. And he read it and handed it back to me and said, uh, she didn't know anyone else to thank, Mother, but you do, don't you? And I do. I know someone else to thank. I'll talk some more, I guess, about the kids tomorrow. I almost stopped right here and told you all about them. You barely escaped. (laughs) Of course, I pray for guidance, as I know you do, before talking to anybody in the capacity of sponsor or otherwise. I ask God to translate, and I believe he does. I never mail a letter without asking him to do that. And I believe he does. I believe he can do it retroactively. I have sometimes asked him to remove from the memory of people things that I said that I thought on retrospect might have been hurtful. And I think he does that too. I ask as I, you, you know, some things I knew before Al-Anon but I never thought to apply in all of my life. I taught school before Al-Anon and I always prayed every day, if I can't help them, God, let me not hurt them. At least I don't want to hurt one of them. And I've learned to pray that about people in Al-Anon. That if I cannot be helpful, at least that I won't do any damage. And I believe he answers that. Don't try to sponsor someone if you can't handle rejection. You're not going to get healthy behavior from sick people. Isn't that a shock? You know? I don't know. I keep expecting it. You'd think I'd catch on after a while. I tell them that if there is a conflict between our friendship and their recovery, that their recovery will come first. And, you know, there almost never is a conflict between the two. But I'm dedicated to their recovery. And the friendship, which, as I said, is a very deep and I think usually, oh, uh, nurturing, nourishing kind. If it happens, it's a bonus. I have to be a safe person for them. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I'm safe for their anger. This took some training on your part, training me. See, I can listen to you tell me how mad you are at a husband or wife, son or daughter, mother, father, boss, school principal. (laughs) But if you're angry with me, I'm able today to handle that. I don't crash and burn over it. I don't have to retaliate and I don't have to go away. And that's a rather tremendous gift. And it was years before I had that to offer. Now, I'm talking about legitimate anger for a legitimate reason. I still can't handle nameless anger that's just flung at me. But uh, for, for reasons that you're able to tell me, I can handle that. And I learned it from people who handled my anger at them. I learned it from a friend, also named Shirley, in San Angelo, Texas. Once we were at a weekend at a friend's home, and I was speaking angrily at my husband because it was late and 
Everyone was noisy, and I was saying, I worked all day, which was a slight reminder that some of the women there had not. And I drove five hours to get here, and I'm tired. And the next day, Shirley said to me, you were angry with me, not him. It's really all right to tell me. And she's the first one who said, I won't go away. Wow. I hope you have some people in your life who are safe for your anger. I have enough. I don't know how you get much of a relationship without that. I think we, we must listen without judgment or condemnation. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was maybe the most judgmental person on earth when I got to you. And I am better, and it would be denying the power of God in my life for me to say I have made no progress. That's false humility. Of course I have. And I'm enormously better about that. You know how I can tell when I listen to Fifth Steps? Those of you who have listened to very many Fifth Steps already know that you learn as much about yourself in the process as you do anyone else. And you learn what your values are. I'll give you an example. I have listened to tales of embezzlement and incest and adultery and accessory to murder without flickering a muscle. But the woman who told me she cheated her way through school nearly got thrown out of my house. (laughs) I I reacted with just just this physical rage and sat there thinking, you know, wait. (laughs) All this was going on inside me, and I thought, wow. What does this tell us? Well, now you know what my values are. Um, (laughs) I think I was safe for her, and I think she did not feel judgment or condemnation. But that was an enlightening moment for me, I can tell you. And I learned that, too, from the people who listened to me without judging and without condemning. You see, here again, it's the Russian and rescue thing. I had to learn to hear your feelings without trying to fix you. If you came and talked to me about being depressed, every cell in my being wanted to undepress you. That's how I got my self-worth. I love this skit this morning with the control wand. Oh, mercy. (laughs) And now, most of the time, I can hear you, and I don't even offer a suggestion unless you ask. And I can just sit there and affirm your feelings. Is that making sense to you? I used to get angry because... Charles did not share his feelings with me. And I had to learn that one reason he did not was that I always tried to fix him. And I hear myself doing this once in a while now, but not often. This, too, uh, applies outside the program. I have a student who comes in, slams down his books, says, Mr. So-and-so is just a bungalow, you know. Well, now, ethically and professionally, he has put me in a bad place. I cannot criticize another teacher even if I know every word he's saying is true, and if I know things that would curl his hair about the person involved, you know. But I am able to say, I can tell you're very angry. Or this has really upset you, hasn't it? Wow, what a freedom that is. You know, it's exhausting to try to fix everything. Weren't you worn out from it? I was. This comes from being involved and not entangled, that we're able to detach from the problem and never the person, And as our literature says, detachment does not mean disinterest. I have to allow the people I sponsor to experience the consequences of their decisions, just as I would anyone else. And it's especially hard when I see them doing something that I feel is self-destructive or non-productive. And uh, 
I don't have the right, of course, to tell them what to do or not to do. To begin with, I'm not always right. Have you found that to be true? Things that I think are going to just be a terrible mistake turn out not to be, and then I'm so glad that you taught me not to give advice. I have had to learn that these people have their own direct line to God. See, that came as a shock to me when I found out my husband and children did because I thought that God always came through me to tell them. I was always willing to tell them God's will for their life. They didn't even have to ask. And they will tell you that I did tell them frequently. Well, it applies with the people I sponsor, too. They have a direct line. And if he doesn't happen to choose me as the vessel, he'll choose someone. But it's hard, isn't it? This is what is called tough love. To stand by and let someone you care very much about experience the consequences of his decisions. I try to, and it's a mistake, to teach them everything at once. They must just feel inundated. (laughs) Do you know the enthusiasm you felt the first year or so when you wanted to stop strangers in the street and say, let me tell you what I found. You you don't have to live this way. (laughs) And uh, there's, there's so many things that I've read and heard, and there's so many people who have helped me, and I want to give it all. And you told me, easy, does it? And you told me very specifically that that did not mean take it easy, that it meant we do things in an easy and gentle manner. So I try to remember that when I want to just save somebody from all the mistakes I made. Hmm. I think we need to encourage independence. If the person I'm sponsoring needs me less and less, this means I'm doing a good job. And that hurts me a little. (laughs) I miss it. I have this mother hen complex, and I miss the being needed. And yet I do have enough recovery today to rejoice. When I release my students five weeks from now, I hope they'll be ready for senior English. I would be sorry if they weren't. When my own children grew up and moved away, I can remember especially my daughter wanting to grab her skirt tails and say, wait, I'm not finished with you yet. There are all these things I didn't tell you. You don't know how to iron rickrack. I remember thinking that. <laughs> I don't think she knows what rickrack is. <laughs> but I was thinking, I'm not through. <laughs> and of course they are on their own before we're ready to turn loose. So the people whom I do sponsor need me less and less. And I become the co-pilot rather than the instructor. And I hope these people know I'm there, as I know my sponsor is there, and that it's a sign of recovery on the part of both of us, that this person can take what he or she has learned and be emotionally self-supporting with it. I'll add one more thing. My time is up. I did not know until a few years ago that I had not only a right but a responsibility to take care of myself emotionally. I'll talk about this at greater length in the morning, but I want to mention it. When you told me take care of yourself, I thought you meant eat properly and get enough sleep. And I have learned that I have a right to avoid needlessly painful situations. Now listen, some pain is essential for my spiritual education, but a great deal of it is avoidable. And I'm able to ascertain today which is which. And I'm able to say, is this something I need to suffer through or not? And do you know most of the time it's not? There are people I don't need to be around. I don't have to. There are situations where I do not have to be present. And I will not let you or anyone else impose on me. And because of that, you are free to ask me for anything. See? Did you follow that? If you know 
that I'm not going to say yes and then resent it. I'm not going to say yes and then gripe about it. Then you're free to ask. I'm so much freer to ask of people who take care of themselves emotionally and who do not permit others to take advantage of them. I think it's a mistake to tell people that we never say no in Al-Anon. I say no a great deal. I say no more than I say yes. I learned some years ago that every time that phone rings, it is not God calling. (laughs) And because I take care of myself, I have something to give you from time to time. I try to balance periods of time with people who drain me, with people who replenish me. And I am absolutely shameless about asking for that. I am amazed at how freely I can ask for it now. You told me that we love people and we use things. And that's true. But in a, in a sense, we do use people. I use your experience and your strength and your hope. And I use your example. Wow, do I. And oh, I use your love and your acceptance. If uh, we are tools in God's hands for him to use, then other people are too. And I don't know much about tools, but I learned one cardinal rule from my father, and that is that you don't abuse them and you don't misuse them. You treat them with respect, including ourselves, if we are to be a worthy worthy tool. My time is up. I will uh, suggest that if you ask God, he will send you to the right sponsor. And if you ask him, then you will be the right sponsor. Hi, Katie Seener from Rapid City, South Dakota. Very, very grateful, Alan. Hi. And very excited about what's coming up this fall in uh, Rapid City. It will be the third regional service seminar. This is something new that World Service is putting together. The first one was in Banff, Canada, uh, in October. We sent a representative from South Dakota to that, and she came back with lots of information. And uh, the second one was in Atlanta, Georgia, the latter part of February. The third one is in Rapid City, South Dakota. A regional service seminar is kind of like a mini-conference. World service more or less brings a conference to us, patterned, I think, pretty much after the um, many conferences that you see AA putting on. And from something like uh, a little over 100 people that attended the first AA mini conference in South Dakota, the one we attended in March had over 700 people there. So it's something that uh, they have found very successful, and I'm sure that Al-Anon is going to find that this is, again, another need that is being met. Uh, The one in Rapid City, of course, is for the northwest region, which includes uh, 13 states or 14 or 15 areas. I think two states, Illinois and Minnesota, have uh, two areas. So they would have two representatives there. They will have uh, people from the World Service there. And those of you who have had your delegate return, uh, 
you don't always have near enough time to get all your questions answered. And this is going to be an opportunity then for this whole area to share in a service seminar. That does not mean you have to be active in service work. We hope people who are in service work will attend, but it is open to anybody. I think at both Banff and Atlanta, they had over 500 people attending. And she's... Hi, I'm Cynthia Recovering Al-Anon. <laughs> Those that have talked today have really been super. I'd like to say what they said goes for me, and and you want to know how it was before Al-Anon, how it was with Al-Anon, and how it is now. Well, it was terrible. It got better, and it keeps getting better, and I'm really through. <laughs> Um, when things would get, my, my mother-in-law was not a gossipy person, but when things would get a little quiet, she'd say, well, well, who will we talk about now? And it just kind of got, got things going again. And so I kind of look at you and think, well, who will we talk about now? Well, we're going to talk about me. Because this is one of the things that I had to realize that Al-Anon is for me. It's my program. It's for me. And as competent as I am, However confident that is, I can't control anyone else's life. I'm doing well if I can control mine, and that I'm having trouble with that quite often. Uh, when E.F. Hutton speaks, it seems everybody listens. Likewise, when Al-Anon speaks, I try to listen, because it has said so much to me and done so much for me. When I went to New York as uh, Nebraska's delegate to the World Service Conference, by the way, Skip should be... Hopefully she's not looking at stepping stones right now if we could have worked it out. Um, when I went to New York, our speaker at the banquet was uh, Margaret D., who was then immediate past editor of the uh, forum. And she was telling her symptoms. And I couldn't believe this. I mean, she was from New York. You'd expect that she'd have a little more sophisticated symptoms <laughs> than those that I had from Nebraska. But we were doing... So many things alike. Uh, she, she felt withdrawn, and I felt withdrawn. We were in this house at the time. It was in Minneapolis, and they had these built-in cupboards in the basement painted gray. And mentally, I just wanted to go down in that horrible, dank basement and crawl into those cupboards and close the door. I, I didn't do that, but mentally, that just sounded like the neatest thing to do. And I um, would never open the curtains during the day or the shades. And... Uh, my self-confidence kept getting less and less and less. I had been able to do things when I was in college, and I'd, I'd been in groups and president of this and ran that, and all of a sudden I just I couldn't do anything. I'd never had a temper before, and all of a sudden I was angry all the time, and I hated people. That's why I did the red hair job, so I could warn everyone, here's someone with a temper. Um, and and um, played the games like... Um, Oh, I didn't just mark lines on the, the booze bottles. I drew pictures, skull and crossbones. Um, by the way, I, I hear if you're going to play the game, you turn it upside down and mark the bottle, and then, I mean, they can't understand why, they, why the level's gone up. But we don't play games like that anymore. Uh, I also couldn't stand being ignored. I'm the one that, uh, well, I, I'm thinking about my spouse so much, and he, he never thinks of me. Poor me. So I sent a raw egg in his lunch. I hadn't hard-cooked it. Um, and I thought, well, when he's cleaning that up, he'll think of me with fond thoughts. 
fortunately or unfortunately, someone realized that it was uncooked when he took it out of the sack, and it didn't stop his drinking. His coworkers thought, well, he did have kind of an interesting wife, but that's all that that did. I, um, there was not any alcoholism in my family when I was growing up, and, and to me, the alcoholic was a skid row bum, and my husband wasn't an alcoholic. He just drank too much, and as much as he drank, I knew he could never stop. I just wanted him to cut down a little bit. Everyone, all the women I knew drove their husbands home from parties because they drank too much, but it was getting where I was driving him to the parties because he had drunk too much. Uh, we uh, had the geographic cure, not always different cities, but we'd moved 12 times in 12 years. And you talk about moving van, and I kind of get a little nervous. Um, a friend, oh, as the alcoholics, or those who drink, they are not necessarily synonymous, talk about how much they drank or going to drink, and I feel that the, the others in the family have their some their conversation games, too. Like, you know how much he drank last night? You know what I'm going to do? And, boy, the next time he drinks, I'm going to do this. And we have, our, we have our little conversational games, too. But I had this one friend who I could never talk to like this because her husband didn't drink. And, of course, she wouldn't understand. But um, one day I answered the phone, crying. And she said, I'll be right over. And she brought some Al-Anon literature. And I was amazed. So there was, it wasn't her husband, but she'd had reason to seek out the Al-Anon program. I put it off for a year. I just, I, I wasn't through trying all these other strange games. This one evening, I did decide to go on Monday, and as it turned out, my mom had a stroke that Saturday, and one thing and another, I felt like I had to pay, put my time in taking care of her and her needs, and so I put off Al-Anon longer. I, that literature did help help me. It was I'm very grateful that I had that. She was ill enough that we had to have her. I had to be um, named her guardian, and this was a very difficult thing because it dealt with how competent she was mentally, and she was more competent than the terms would seem, but still I had to do things for her as a guardian, and that was very very difficult. And thank goodness I had the Al-Anon literature at least to help me through that time progressed and things got worse and I really didn't know a lot about what alcohol does to the drinker but I was food oriented I was a homemade major in school and I knew that Jim was not eating and I kept thinking he was going to die and then you know how do you explain this so um, also I felt that he just didn't understand see when I See, if I had a mic like this, I just couldn't get his attention. If I had a loudspeaker and maybe said it louder, you were drinking too much. But maybe that would have gotten him sober sooner, do you suppose? But anyway, he just, um, he was a quiet drunk, and he'd come home and go to bed, but he wasn't eating. And I'd set the table every night, and he'd come home and ignore it. I know later I saw some posters that one of the treatment centers had, and I kept thinking, now that poster is supposed to tell me that there's a problem in that family. And I could not figure out what it was because it looked so normal. It showed the mother and the two children at the dinner table in the empty chair. Oh, yeah, that's not normal. That's just how we were living. <laughs> so this one evening, the table was set and everyone was eating. And I thought, well, he just doesn't realize what the problem is. And so, well, I had to explain this very carefully. Um, it wasn't a whole vacuum cleaner. I just have an Electrolux and the wands come apart. Someone thought I went at him with a whole big vacuum cleaner. I just took the little wand and applied it to his rear end as he was asleep on his stomach on the bed because I thought, 
I mean, I love him, and I want him to wake up and eat dinner so he doesn't die. So, fortunately, I didn't love him any more than I did. And fortunately, he didn't retaliate. But I, and I didn't really get his attention too much, but he said, well, if you hit me a few more times, I'll get up and eat. And it suddenly dawned on me what a sick situation this was. And as I explained earlier, I yelled uncle, and which was so, which was hard for me to do as a, as a, a child. Someone was trying to make me say uncle by twisting my arm behind my back, and, uh, at that point I was, you can break my arm, but I will not say uncle. Well, this time, this time I said uncle. And I got on the phone, and we have the, the Alano Club, and to me that said Alanon. I didn't want to talk to any AA. Later, of course, I find out that it's the AA Club. But I, um, they had different meetings closer in churches, but I had visions of wandering endlessly in a church to find the right room, and this place did have an address. So I got to my first Al-Anon meeting. It turns out the gentleman on the phone told me everything about it except that it was a men's-only meeting. And I, I got down there, and I was late, of course. That's one of my character defects that I keep working on. And so I sat down at the first table I saw, and it, all of a sudden he was talking to me about drinking. And I thought, oh, my gosh, they think I'm the alcoholic. Can't they tell?